2: Iconium, Paul, and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders." The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derb and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the good news. In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet, was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. bus, they called Zeus. And Paul, they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, who was, who, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human, like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them.
0: Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back to the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Attalia. From Atalia they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them, and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Um, my name is Mike, I'm one of the pastors here, it's great to be with you, it's been a while since I've been preaching at CIG, and it's a privilege to, uh, to dig into this passage uh, my name is Mike and I'm a weirdo. Um, at least my wife thinks so in some ways. Uh, I kind of, she thinks I'm weird because I like change. Uh, she said to me once, Mike, you kind of, you thrive on change. See, so she would rather when we go on holidays um, that I didn't have 50 ideas on what to do next uh, and I could just sit and rest because she likes doing that. She would like it if after a couple of years of setting up shop in our house, I didn't come up with an idea to kind of rearrange the whole house and furniture because I just felt like a change. She kind of would like things a bit more kind of steady going, and I'm always kind of, I get bored really quickly. <laughs> um, didn't even finish that sentence, for instance. Um, some change is hard. So I was speaking to someone at Urco who came back from holidays, it was a couple of months in Europe, uh, to find that the company she worked for had been bought out by someone else and a whole bunch of her colleagues weren't there anymore. That kind of change is, is hard. Sometimes change brings about great stress, even conflict. And even though I like change, even I find that hard. What we come to tonight, uh, as we land in the middle of Acts, smack bang in the middle really, and we continue our second series, The Unstoppable Gospel, we look at Paul's first missionary journey and he brings a message that is radical, it's new, it's going to bring change. And he's bringing that into a changing and complex and dynamic world. And so the reactions are kind of... To be honest, they're insane, right? In one day, Paul goes from being deified as a god to then being stoned by the same people. This is where we're headed tonight. i want to give you a good heads up and just work through it. I want to say, in a changing world, stand firm, suffer well because of the grace of God. And I want to look to Paul's example as he embodies this, as he lives out the gospel in a complex and changing world, and I want to dig into how he responds and why he responds like that, that we might be encouraged tonight in an equally complex and changing world. Now, I used to be an engineer, and sometimes I think in diagrams, and uh, this first point is brought to you by a Venn diagram. Uh, You might be familiar with Venn diagrams, two circles, and sometimes they overlap, uh, and you look at kind of commonalities where that overlap is. Uh see, what happens is that there might be kind of something we're really familiar with, you know, the world as we know it, and then a whole new idea comes in and sometimes there's an overlap there, sometimes there's no overlap and it's so radically different, it's a massive step of faith. But Paul is bringing in this message of Jesus and he brings that into a world that people think they understand. And he's going to say, you know, you think you understand God's, the way the world works, but I want to tell you about the living God. I want you to turn away from those things and and turn to Jesus. And he's he's talking to people who have never heard about Jesus. And he's going to say that Jesus died for their sins and that he rose again. That's not normal. That is radical. In fact, as someone said, um, uh, Christopher Hitchens' brother, Peter Hitchens, said a couple of years ago at the Dangerous Ideas Festival, it is the most dangerous idea in history, the resurrection. It turns everything upside down and Paul is going to bring that into a complex and changing world. Let's look at the two audiences that he's mainly speaking to. He's speaking to the Jews and to the Gentiles. For the Jews, there's a fair bit of overlap in kind of in the way they understand the world and in what Paul's bringing because they understand kind of the Messiah. Their whole kind of testament, the Old Testament story, the story of Israel has been set up looking for and hoping for a Messiah to bring salvation first to the Israelites and then to the world. So you'd think that kind of when Jesus rocks up on the scene, they'd be like, okay, so here, you know, we're getting here. Except that that doesn't completely overlap for them because they've rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so there's a great deal of tension as Paul kind of brings, you know, as a Jew, saying Jesus is the Messiah, and they push back very hard against that. So the Greeks, the pagans, who have not heard about Jesus before, They think they understand the world and and they understand kind of a pantheon of gods, uh, Zeus, for instance. Uh, They understand the kind of great miracles, great power, great works of power. That comes from the gods. And so when they see Paul come in and he's doing great signs and miracles, they say, we understand what's going on here. You're a god. The gods have, have come on in human form. Of course, in that kind of overlap, they've actually just... Taken what they've seen and absorbed everything into their own worldview. And Paul's going to say, close, <laughs> no. He's going to bring, uh, bring out that kind of that separation, that challenge, that new idea. He's going to speak to them in the overlap of common grace. He's going to say, kind of what you take for granted the rain, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the produce of the land, the joy that you have, speaking in verse 15. All of that comes from God. But I want you to turn away, and this is where he kind of that separation of ideas comes out. I want you to turn away from worthless things, he says, that you might turn to the living God. And you can see how that new idea is going to bring great change and great challenge. You might be thinking about how the gospel resonates amongst the friends that you have in the culture that you find yourself in, and also how it. It challenges how it's radically different. I was uh, in an Uber car the other day. I love driving Uber. You get to kind of meet, you know, these to quote bike club single serving friends all the time. Uh, That's a movie from the '90s, but (laughs) but you just, you know, you're probably never going to see this person again. But you get an opportunity just to share life for a moment, and I just love that as as an extrovert, always kind of wanting to meet new people. And in this six minute conversation, uh, we're listening to American Pie or some kind of classic song, and I'm like. You know, great, great playlist. And she's like, oh, it's just, you know, something that everyone likes. I said, what do you listen to when, when no one's in the car? And she's like a, a podcast. What do you listen to What podcast? What on spirituality? I said, I'm into spiritual things. I'm a pastor. And kind of, that's where I'm seeing some kind of res- resonance there. There's some kind of overlap between her ideas of the way the world works and, and my ideas of what I understand. And I said, oh, what's, kind of, what's it about? And she's kind of like, oh, just, it's about sort of self-help and just how there's all these spiritual ideas. And I said to her, I said, I'd like to believe that. But I believe that Jesus has actually revealed the fullness of God as a Christian. And I don't, think there's, I don't think there's any room left or any need left because Jesus created all things, um, he sustains all things, and, and he saved me. I said, I'm pretty satisfied with that. And she's like, that's an interesting way of putting it. And I said, well, it's worth kind of listening to him on his terms, not just kind of what might help you, but actually who he is, kind of respect him a little bit and just kind of see what he's got to say. Turns out she's going to go to Hillsong Church. She downloaded the Bible app the previous night. And, uh, you know, just as we interact with people, we just find ourselves resonating over sort of common ideas, but also we're going to be pushing people as we ask them to consider Jesus on his terms. And it's not always going to be easy. In fact, it's going to cause conflict at times. It's going to cause suffering. But we'll get to that. The kind of Venn diagram idea might even be thought about over time. I've been listening to a podcast, um, a great podcast, that I know a number of you are listening to, called This Cultural moment and in that there's a, a pastor, pastors from uh, Portland in the US and uh, from Melbourne uh, down south and they're talking about culture and history and mission and Christianity and uh, one of the things they put me onto was just the, the kind of the three time spaces, pre-Christian, Christian and, and post-Christian. So for a while there, uh, as Paul brings in this radical new idea of the gospel, he kind of brings it into how people understood the world in the pre-Christian age. And it's, it's a radically new idea and there's persecution and conflict and kind of it's not going great at times for the church. But then somehow kind of in AD 400 or you know, around there, the, the kind of the Western world takes on Christianity even. And so there's a huge overlap. But then over the recent years, hundreds of years, Uh, we've seen a post-Christian move, a rejection of Christianity. Now, the point that they make uh, in this podcast is we're not going back to a pre-Christian world. A post-Christian world actually defines itself from Christianity. It's moved on from. They say it's like they're continuing the Christian project without the Christ, wanting the kingdom without the king. It's an interesting way of putting it. But when we understand the kind of that might be what's going on, it helps us understand why people think of the way they do about Christianity. I was just chatting to someone in the supper break um, who said they had an opportunity to share a bit about Jesus with a colleague, and they said, I think Christianity is terrible. Why would they think that? Once upon a time, Christianity was viewed on, even by non-Christians, as a virtuous and kind of good, but now considered at times dangerous and terrible because the post-Christian world has defined itself from Christianity, separate to, moving on from. All this is to say, we should expect the gospel to resonate at times with people and to challenge people deeply. I'm nervous about where some things are headed, freedom of religion, um, some of those things. I don't really want to focus on that tonight. I want to focus on Paul's response, where his heart's at, that we might walk with Christ, know him more, whether you're a believer or whether you're searching Tonight, I just want us to dig in to look at Paul's example in a changing world and see how he responds. First of all, he stands firm. If you look at some of the language of Paul and Barnabas, kind of the verbs, what they're doing, you kind of read in verse 1 how they spoke the gospel so effectively that many came to Christ, many became disciples. After the Jews who don't like some of the ideas that Paul is saying poisoned the minds of the crowd... They dig in and spend considerable time with those disciples. They continue to speak boldly. You know, Paul's on an idiot, he flees at times in verse 6 and 7, but then goes to continue to preach the gospel, that people might stand firm. In verse 22, we get that really explicitly, strengthening disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. He's helping them stand firm. Now, we know this church building is pretty old and it's still standing, and beautifully so, because it's built on solid foundations. Urco Church, less so, kind of rolling down Rochford Street a little bit, a few cracks in the walls. But we know the importance of foundations and Paul is constantly taking people back to the foundations of Christianity, that they might stand or remain true to the faith, that they might understand the simplicity of the gospel, that Jesus lived for them, died for them, and rose again for them, and for us. That we might have forgiveness of sins, that we might find new life in Him, and all that Christ has to offer. And when the minds of His audience are poisoned by all the different ideas that people have on how things work, He doubles down, He spends time with them. He spends considerable time with them. It's a kind of beautiful picture, actually. Because as Glenn Scrivener reminded us, we're not walking around handing out free tickets to heaven. We're actually offering Christ, that we might know him and celebrate all that he has for us. We might discover our new selves in him. And that's not easy. Because whatever the dominant themes are in culture, they will have a significant pull on us. Just think about all the narratives that we swim in, whether it be through advertising or TV, or the books we read, or the conversations we have, or what's celebrated in the workplace. How people think about careers, relationships, sex, power, whatever. There's a whole bunch of narratives saying this is how the world works. And here is Christianity, the gospel, that Paul is laboring that people would would understand and kind of build their lives upon. And he spends considerable time with them, working through, going deeper with them, as we might say here that they might ultimately understand that the gospel offers a more compelling counter-narrative to anything else that this world has to offer. My hope is that at church, wherever people are at, whether they're searching, whether they've been a long-time believer, that people might experience and discover that greater counter-narrative that the gospel has to offer. Find deeper intimacy than casual sex, a deeper identity than what your career says about you, a more beautiful use of power in serving than in seeking advancement. All of these things, my hope is that we might go deeper with and spend considerable time with each other. When I kind of take my leading from Christ, where, where doubting Thomas has got doubts, and Jesus says, kind of, interrogate me, explore, spend time with me, as he spends time with Thomas. My hope is that no matter what your story, that we might be able to slow down, spend time, explore Jesus, and find something more beautiful in him, Than anything else that this world has to offer. Standing firm is about knowing Jesus. And we get to do that together. I love that. In a changing world, stand firm and suffer well. That's a weird idea, isn't it? Suffer well. The concept is challenging because it just it flies in the face of the utilitarian dream, you know, that kind of idea that everyone should be as happy as possible, the most amount of people should be as happy as possible. That's a great dream, I love it. It's, kind of, it's even close to sort of the kingdom vision of Revelation 21, where Jesus will wipe away every tear and cure every disease. But I'm not willing to achieve the kingdom vision without the king. And the king that I follow, he suffered for me, and he knows my pains and my sufferings, and as Paul sums up his travels in verse twenty-two, he says, "We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God," and he knows this because on this trip he'd been stoned and left for dead. Just think about it, right? He'd been stoned and so so stoned, uh, not in marijuana with rocks, that he'd been left for dead. And his his brothers and sisters in Christ pick him up, and off he goes to preach the same message that caused that pain. Is he an idiot? No. I think we find his motivation in verse 15, where he says to the Greeks, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. He knows that's not going to be a popular message. He knows that that's an idea that is radical, is different, and is going to cause conflict. But he so considers it good news, that he's willing to suffer for it. And the suffering comes in two ways here, right? Because God's not simply a life coach. He's actually the Lord who calls us to repent, to turn away from the ways of the world that we would understand living for ourselves and turn to live for Jesus. I mean, that's a radical kind of about turn, repentance. But secondly, as we've been talking about, this Christian life actually puts us in conflict with every alternative of worship, whether it be career or another god, or a religion, or whatever the case may be. And so internally we're repenting, externally we're kind of running up against every counter-narrative there is. And so Paul's reminding us here to be prepared to suffer. How do we suffer well? Well, simply recognising that the Christian life doesn't promise a bed of roses is the beginning. If your expectation is that you came to Christ and your life's going to be sorted and sweet and amazing, I kind of want to say, well, Jesus died on a cross. It didn't go heaps well for him at one level. Except, so that's just adjusting expectations, except we know that Christ rose from the dead. That God didn't abandon him even though he suffered. And so whatever you're going through, whatever suffering, internally as you repent or externally as you're kind of pressing up against people who are pushing back against Christianity, know that God will not abandon you because he didn't abandon Christ. And he will work his sovereign ways through your life. But inevitably, we will suffer, and I want to encourage you to suffer well. In a changing world, stand firm and suffer well. Now, as you think about that, I can't help but feel that sounds a little bit like a cult. You reckon? I um I remember living on a college, a more college campus in Croydon Park. Uh, so there was like you know fifteen units and a big house and a big patch of grass where the kids would run around and, and we'd hang out our washing together as families and we'd eat together on Tuesday nights and I was chatting to one of the neighbours over the fence and she's like, what is this? I said, it's like a, it's a more college thing. I said, it looks like a cult, doesn't it? She's like, yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching um, on ABC just the other night um, that You Can't Ask That, have you been watching that? It's pretty fascinating, pretty, pretty hardcore at times. There was an episode on speaking to those who have come out of side of cults. And it was kind of funny at first, you know, they were kind of quite into answering pretty earnest questions about how they'd been brainwashed uh, and kind of just some of the quirks of cult life. But then it got really heavy as they talked about abuse verbal, emotional, physical, sexual. It's really messed up. And I hate the idea that church would be even close to a cult. So, is. Paul, as he says, stand firm and suffer well, is he advocating for a cult? One of the things I noticed in, in this program, you can't ask that, was that the common theme was that there'd be some kind of, you know, big wig kind of leader calling people to say, you must listen to what I'm saying, and you, and you kind of, you should suffer, even at my hand, because I know what's best, and you've got to listen to what I say. Is Paul a cult leader? Am I a cult leader? I guess it can't help but there be an overlap in the definition of church and a cult. I guess that just technically that is probably true. But there is one really critical thing that should separate church so vastly from an abusive cult that you would never compare the two. And that is grace. Because of the grace of God. And I'm taking Paul's leading on this. He, doesn't, he knows grace like no other. Remember, he he was actually persecuting the church. He was attacking Jesus and his followers. Until one day Jesus appears, the risen Lord Jesus, appears on the way to Damascus and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And out of that encounter, Saul finds himself forgiven, given new life and called into the family of God that he might participate in the ministry of Christ. (laughs) That is grace. Despite all that he was doing, Jesus forgave him and gave him new life and called him into his glorious plan. And so in verse 3 we read, The Lord confirmed the message of his grace and so enabled Paul and Barnabas to perform signs and wonders. Paul is able to speak on common ground about common grace because he knows that God is beautiful and gifts great things to all people. In verse 26, uh, Paul describes... Antioch is the place where they had been committed to the grace of God and that work had now been completed. Paul constantly speaks of grace. He can't help but speak of grace because it turned his world upside down. He didn't get what he deserved. Instead he got grace, he got forgiveness. And now he's committed to that grace of God that compels him out that other people would find grace. And when the church is centred On grace, it changes everything. Firstly, because of grace, the church is not an abusive cult. A cult is defined by hard boundaries that are controlled. You can't go outside those boundaries. You can't read and interact with that material. You can only talk to me about these things. Whereas Paul encourages people to discern, to learn, to investigate, to explore... The church has soft boundaries, as one theologian has put it. We should be distinctive, but we are not defined by not what other people are. A cult says we are this and everyone else are enemies, are separate. You should not interact with them. Whereas we are defined by Jesus Christ. And we recognize that everyone around us, even if they're outside the church, are equally lost like we were. And just as we have been gifted grace, our hope is that they would find grace, that they would find Jesus. But we are not defined against them. They are not our enemies. Because of grace, I can't draw a circle around this people here and say they've made it, everyone else is out. We are all messy. We are all being transformed. We are all being forgiven daily as we mess up and constantly seek Jesus' forgiveness. Grace turns the church around from being a cult to a place where people are being transformed by the power of Jesus. Because of grace, we can stand firm and exercise compassion. In an age where disagreement can be equated with hate speech, I want to demonstrate a simultaneous conviction and compassion so that people might say of me, he doesn't agree with me, but he loves me. Grace enables me to do that because I don't see people as my enemies. I see those my brothers and sisters made in the image of God. And I'd love them to find the gift that I found in Christ. And I want to keep working alongside them, loving them, despite what their views are or what they think, despite even what they might say of me or do to me. Because of grace, we don't need to hide in fear, but we are propelled outward. That whole idea of pay it forward, <laughs> because we have been gifted the gift of grace and forgiveness, Our hope is that others would also find that. So we need to hide in fear as though we'd be contaminated. We want to help others find what we have found in Jesus. Will this be easy? No. We should be prepared to suffer well. And we should be reminded to stand firm. Because of the grace of God, we are able to stand firm and suffer well despite a changing world. And when all is said and done, Our focus is not on ourselves, but Jesus Christ. Let me finish with Paul's report in Antioch, where he reports everything that happened. He said, kind of reporting back to the church in Antioch, oh my gosh, it was nuts. They deified me, they tried to sacrifice things to me, then they tried to stone me, but I got away and I kept preaching the gospel. He he didn't say that at all, did he? What does he say? Be with me at the end. On arriving there... They gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That is his report on all the crazy shenanigans of his first journey. Because it's all about Jesus. It's all about knowing him. And that God might open a door of faith to many through our lives and through what we speak. May we stand firm. May we suffer well. All because of the grace of Jesus. Amen.